My name is Edmund Keeley. I have to declare right at the start, uh, I'm the moderator of the panel, but I'm clearly an imposter because I'm not a true immigrant. Uh, not, in the, not in the sense that uh, one would probably define as we're going to define it at certain moments tonight, but in another sense maybe so because I, although born of American parents, I was born in Syria and lived in Canada and then Greece before I came to this country in 1939 at the age of 11. And I had a confusion of languages at that time. Uh, although, uh, well, I, I considered Greek my native language, although I wasn't a native Greek, because that was the language I played in. And German was another language that was almost native, uh, a horrible language that I studied in, went to school in. And then there was my third language, which was English, that I used occasionally to communicate when I got around to it with my parents. So English, I considered my third language until I came to this country and found out that, of course, it was a tremendous advantage to an immigrant of the kind I was to become very American very quickly. And I spent a great deal of time trying to become more American than the Americans. Uh, that was OK until I became a writer and then I discovered, as I think some of the other people on this panel have discovered at certain times, that my main subject was the lost homeland that I'd left behind, at least for a while. And then, of course, there's a reaction against that lost homeland, and you want to write about your new homeland, which is your native country in my case, and in the case of the other people on this panel, their adopted country, and so on and so forth. So in some sense, I, I have shared to a degree in the immigrant experience but uh, I'm not really as qualified to talk on the subject as the other people on this panel, so I'm not going to do as much talking when I get stopped. Uh, I might just add that uh, I'm a novelist uh, when I'm writing novels. I translate modern Greek poetry when I'm a translator. I write some nonfiction, and to support myself, I teach creative writing and Hellenic studies at Princeton. Now, the panelists in alphabetical order, Eva Hoffman on my left. Uh, Eva was born and brought up in Poland. She came to the United States in 1959 at the age of 13. This is going to be very crude and awful. I'm going to reveal the ages of all of us up here. But since uh, that's already been done in print by at least the, the three ladies, I don't feel I'm being totally unchivalrous. Uh, you can, uh, let's just skip over what I just said. She studied at Rice University in Texas and at Harvard, and her book, Lost in Translation, A Life in a New Language, which I have here. You can have a look at these after our session if you want. Came out this year and was very warmly received, and she currently is an editor of the New York Times Book Review. Bharati Mukherjee, on my extended left, was born and educated in Calcutta. She came to the United States in 1962 at the age of 20, uh, actually 10. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take 10. Okay. She earned her PhD at the University of Iowa, where I had the immense pleasure of working with her in my first translation workshop. I was a visit visiting writer at the Writers' Workshop, and that lovely lady was one of my first students. So we both experimented in how one tries to teach translation. I'm still experimenting at it. I think I'm about to give it up. 
Uh, she now teaches at Columbia and at Queens College. She's the author of two novels, two books of nonfiction, and two collections of stories, most recently The Middleman and Other Stories, Grove Press, 1988, which won the Book Critics Circle Award in Fiction and is a wonderful book. So is Eva's, by the way. I forgot to mention that. She has a new novel coming out in September, she just told me. And an old friend, Laurie Siegel, who was once a colleague of mine at Princeton for quite a number of years, uh, born in Vienna, left Austria for England in 1938 at the age of zero, although put a one in front of that. Educated in England and the University of London, and she came to this country via the Dominican Republic in 1951 and settled in New York City, where she lives a good part of the year and also Chicago part of the year, is that right? She's the author of two novels, most recently the broadly acclaimed Her First American, that title's very significant for our session tonight, and also the author of a moving and vastly entertaining memoir of her years of being lost in translation, Other People's Houses, again a significant title, brought out by Harcourt Brace Janovich in 1964 and the New American Library in 1973. All right, so much for introductions. Our mode of operation tonight is going to be uh, varied. We have no real plan of action, but we're going to start off by having uh, a couple general statements from two of the panelists, and then we're going to have some uh, large, broad questions that each will answer uh, with the other panelists coming in on the questions. There's a couple seats up here, I think, way up front. I'm going to begin with my former colleague, Lori Siegel, on my right, who will read from a short statement that she prepared for this occasion. Incidentally, when we're through having our day up here or our evening up here, we're going to throw the session open to the audience, so you will have a chance to ask questions from the floor. There may even be an occasion while we're talking, but let's, let's hold it off for a while and see what happens. Lori? I, I'm reading this statement entirely by mistake. I was, I was being a good girl, and I thought I was supposed to make one, so I wrote one. And since I wrote one, I'm going to read it quite formally. No, I think it's better now. I trust that somebody in this room, can you hear me? Yes? I trust that somebody in this room will tell me who it was who defined being bilingual so formidably as being at home in two cultures. I suspect that we immigrant writers are never 100%. We are at best 150 or 200% at home in our second language. When the American-born writer can, the, where the American-born writer can keep five cultural and five syntactic balls in the air at one and the same time, Bharati Mukherjee's stories can't help juggling 10 or 15 at the very least of each. As for Eva Hoffman, <coughs> She defines the task of being bilingual still more formidably as having learned to be oneself, to be oneself in two cultures. 
Bharati has invented 200% American landscape to describe the new la uh, language to describe the new landscape, and Eva has invented a new language with which to think about the acquisition of the new language of a workable new world self. I envy, envy Eva the experience. By the way, I want to ask you, how do you, how do you pronounce the Eva? How it has been Eva for many years But now. How, does it, how does it sound in the Oh, Eva, but Eva, I, see. But, yes, I envy Eva, Eva, <laughs> the experience of the acquisition. I missed it, not the acquisition, but the experience of acquiring. For an acutely simple reason, I was 10, Eva was 13. When my only own children were born, now they were really zero when they were born, <laughs> uh, I thought, now I will see language happen. And I have learned to use the word language in Eva's sense as the medium and measure of the culture and of the self as a member of it. I was going to observe my children learn to speak and become American persons. It was like trying to watch the movement of time on an old pre-digital clock. Always, always the second hand has just finished moving in the moment of the watcher's inattention. My babies acquired every word and all their grammar in the absence of my mind, just as I had acquired my baby German, and as, at 10 years of age, I acquired English. I came to England thinking I knew it. Hadn't I been having English classes in the Vienna Volksschule? On the boat that ferried my transport of 400 Jewish children across the channel, I was puzzled when I did not know how to ask the sympathetic old black steward who came to tuck me in for a glass of water. With my first foster family at Liverpool, I kept thinking that if I only listened harder, I would understand what they were saying, and I was quite right. I listened so hard that in six weeks I knew English. Can never be done again. <laughs> Observations show that the eight-year-old immigrant learns to speak the new language without a trace of accent, without, by extension, the taint of the old country. I have a theory. I doubt if science would bear me out, and I don't ask it to. Let me imagine that our speech apparatus continues soft like a baby's skull until some cutoff point, around eight or nine. Thereafter, the way we form our vowels and our consonants is basically fixed. And it's not only the sound equipment that sets. It's the way we move the muscles that operate the language of our faces and our speaking hands. When I emigrated to the Dominican Republic, I lived with the Jewish Berlin lawyer's family. They had arrived when the youngest daughter was five, when Claudia spoke German, she appeared to be a tidy middle-class German girl. But when she spoke Spanish, it was with hands and face in motion so that she was indistinguishable from the vivid Dominican children in the street. Her manner, her class, changed along with her language. A question, how does the youngest immigrant infant know enough to pick up the accent of its future outside in the street and not the accent of the alien parents back inside the house. I came to England when I was 10, and you can hear in the uh, operations of my tongue the traces of my first language, which I no longer speak with any fluency, 
when I'm with Swiss friends, we tend to end up speaking English. But I acquire the vocabulary, the syntax, the idiom, as I said, in six weeks. I never figured out that I did not know English. Talking, what's not to know? The child does not block the paths of knowledge with the consciousness of ignorance. We don't ask, what does that mean? Time, clock, America, self, being in or being out. You have never looked any of these words up in any dictionary, and yet there was a first time when you heard them in a sentence, in a situation. You slid the little packet of sounds into the capacious holding area back of your mind. You met it a second time in a different sentence, and a third time in a different situation, and triangulated on its true meaning, or quite possibly a, a mistaken meaning that needed a, a correction later. Thereafter, every time you use or hear the word in a new situation or a new sentence, it acquires a new meaning. I was going to quarrel with somebody, but I won't. <laughs> I, I, later. I came to the Dominican Republic at 20, lived there three years, and was old enough to fail to acquire Spanish. At 23, I came to New York and was naturalized. I looked up the word in the dictionary. The uh, and here's, a, uh, here's uh, Webster's second meaning. The first one I've forgotten, it didn't apply. Mm -hmm. To cause to become established as native. And the second one, which I love, to bring into conformity with nature. <laughs> you see, Eva and Bharati and I were not properly natural before mm -hmm. we came to America. I had to ask myself a question here. What must I do to become the person who lives in America, to which, to which I had an expressed answer, nothing. I remember people asking me whether I felt more Aust Austrian or American, and I answered, I feel like an Austrian Jew who was educated in England and lives in America. <laughs> they, yeah, they said, but what do you really feel like? And I said, an Austrian Jew who was educated in England <laughs> and lives in America. I want to insist that both my living and my writing self consists of these constituent parts, I considered it a matter of honor to neither preserve my, my English t hard English T or my open English R, nor to force the American sounds. I constrained myself to remain passive and to observe what time and place would do with me. Here are some of the random things my observation yields. As a writer, I have available to me the experience of an Austrian childhood and English adolescence, and forgetting my three useless years of Latin American disgruntlement, the scenes of adult New York. As a speaker, the approach of the word tomato makes me stammer. Thank you. Uh, I think we have another statement by Barty Mukherjee informal, she said. Well, Laurie says she was a good girl and she wrote out a speech. I was a semi-good girl <laughs> and made notes to myself. <laughs> I was a complete literalist and, and followed our protocol. And decided right. not to. She's not a bad girl. We decided a different strategy. That was all. Just a very literal person. So I'll just uh, set up a, a few items on the agenda that perhaps we can develop, come back to debate, etc. Um, it seems to me not entirely accidental that 
three out of the four of us here at the table were born into a language other than English. But right now, in the bigger cities in this country, you will find that this kind of multilingualism, multiculturalism is a fact. And I am thrilled by what I see as another unique moment in American sociology, American history, and the beginning of a unique moment in American literature. About 10 years ago, I attended an American culture conference, that was the title of the conference, organized by Salma Gandhi, the uh, quarterly, at Skidmore College. And it was about, turned out, uh, with the key paper being delivered uh, by George Steiner in proxy, actually. He was uh, in absentia. Uh, that the paper was about Europe's contribution to American culture and thought. And there I was sitting at the table and saying, hey, but through the 70s, some of us have come from somewhere else other than Europe, and we have something to say too. We have brought our own languages, religions, and so on with us. And I remember that a famous critic who happened to be sitting next to me at the panel and has written flamboyant and marvelous text on American culture, first blew cigarette smoke in my face and then turned his neo-macho back on me <laughs> for the rest of the uh, panel session. But I feel that really in the last 10 years, the fact that we are doing panels like this and that many non-white immigrant writers are being represented in magazines and so on is a kind of tribute to the growing presence and growing awareness of the multiplicity of this country. I didn't speak a word of English until I was three years old. I lived a very middle-class Bengali life in a very middle-class Calcutta neighborhood. Up to age eight, the only English words I knew were like bat, mat, cat, you know, three-letter words that weren't too disruptive, taught by Protestant nuns in Calcutta. The first big sort of um, outward movement for me, looking out to another language, looking out to another culture, the snorting in of ambition, if you like, and outwardness, uh, foreignness in the best sense, came when I was eight years old and went with my family to live for a while in Britain and Switzerland. And I feel that that was the big break in terms of language and culture and ambition for me. When I returned to India at age 11 and a half, 12, I was in independent or you know, free India, but in a school for elegant young women of Calcutta which ran a very post-colonial, very colonial life in post-colonial times. As a result, I began to lose my Bengali and acquire English culture and language more thoroughly in free India than I had in England, in school in England or anywhere else. And that that was the beginning, if you like, of my um, 
eventual coming to the United States. In Mike Keeley's uh, translation workshop uh, in 1962, I was translating a novel, a Bengali sort of classic modern novel called Pothir Panchali, Saga of the Road, which was made into a movie by Satyajit Ray, the Bengali film uh, director. And our first, Mike's forgotten this, I'm sure. I hope so. I hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, met for a conference, and he went through it, and he said, you know, this just bothers me a lot. And I said, what? My English? What have I done? How can I improve? And he said, no. The hero, who was a 12-year-old boy, breaks an arm and stays in bed for three months because of his broken arm. And he thought that was very strange, culturally very alien. It had not occurred to me that people didn't stay in bed for three months with <laughs> broken arms. And that was the beginning of my realizing that my job as a writer, whether I wanted to or not, was the making of the unfamiliar familiar and the familiar unfamiliar. Unlike Mike, I do not write about lost homelands. I did that at the beginning because that was the only land I knew well and felt comfortable, natural writing. But I think that what I am interested in doing is to be an immigrant writer rather than an expatriate writer or an exile or um, a refugee. It's to discover a new homeland. It's to send down roots and to rediscover for you parts of America that you perhaps do not see or um, have forgotten about. I think of myself uh, as an Alice in Wonderland kind of writer. I'm always looking for a hole in the ground to jump through and then look at the familiar America in a topsy-turvy way from under the ground. And so, I mean, for me, it's a really very big difference between the immigrant and the expatriate, and I know that we'll get into that in some way. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to add at the beginning is that at age 18, I had a very clear-cut choice in my life. I could either go on a French government, uh, Indian French government scholarship to Paris to study for a graduate degree, or I could have come to the United States. And I got the French offer of the French scholarship because I'd won some kind of international essay writing contest arranged by Librairie Hachette. My knowledge of French, you know, essay writing, was very adequate, but I didn't want to go to France. I didn't know the culture well enough. All that went in addition to, with and in addition to the language. I wanted to go to the United States because US represented a kind of magic to me. And I think that the immigrant writer has to want to put down roots, has to want to belong, um, has to feel the magic. Otherwise, the writer, the foreign writer may change citizenships, but never really becomes a part of the place, never really appropriates um, part of the place. 
We'll talk about language mm -hmm. later on, eh? Mm -hmm. I think of myself, by the way, as a kind of um, banyan tree. I don't know if you're familiar with banyan trees, these old gnarled thing with 3,000 roots, and you can't tell uh, which is the original root and which are the later false roots. When I was a teenager in this fancy school in Calcutta, the one thing, girls' school, the one thing we were allowed to do once a year was go on a picnic to the Calcutta Botanical Gardens. And there we went in our Sandra D clothes, because this was the 50s, and Muslim tailors who sat on our veranda made Sandra D pedal pushers and circular skirts for us. And we went with our uh, ayahs, our uh, maids, bodyguards, and Irish nuns who acted very imperial. And we would play around the trunks trying to find the root, the original root of this tree. And I feel I'm like that banyan wherever I've lived in too many continents, too many countries, and that wherever I've gone, I've kind of dropped roots so that I no longer know which part of me is Indian and which part of me is Canadian or British or American. Well, I think I'd better uh, explain that uh, our third participant here is not unwilling to make a statement. Her statement really resides in the questions that we're going to take up now because she was largely responsible for framing those. Uh, one uh, footnote to your story about the broken arm business. I want you to know that one reason that uh, surprised me, I broke my arm in Greece when I was nine years old, and the veterinarian who said it for me <laughs> uh, so traumatized me that I wasn't able to go to sleep for three nights, let alone stay in bed. And once it came out of the cast after about a month, I had to exercise it constantly, so I, I was very, uh, I was jealous of you, a young man, that's all. Uh, all right, the first question that uh, Eva was really responsible for framing is this. Immigrants, exiles, expatriates, emigres, refugees. From a writer's point of view, are there important differences between these categories? In particular, can one define what it is that makes immigrant writing a distinguishable category? I want to add one further category to that which comes out of Eva's own book. On page 221 she has this wonderful sentence. I only know that the hybrid creature I've become is made up of two parts Americana, that the pastiche has lots of local color. Despite my resistance or perhaps through its very act, I've become a partial American, a sort of resident alien. So I add the category of resident alien, which is really what I sometimes feel in American, which is one reason I think it gives me a particular slant on my writing. Is that right? May I add that? Now the question uh, is in particular, can one define what it is that makes immigrant writing a distinguishable category? And uh, Bharati is uh, offered to go at that first. Well, if I can uh, just build on what I was saying uh, about the immigrant and the expatriate, it seems to me that uh, the refugee writer in your list is uh, sort of the most, uh, the person under most political pressure and has a political agenda, but that she or he always still has hope that uh, there is a return to the original land. 
uh, a refugee writer always, I think, feels that uh, she or he is on loan from the original country. Um, the emigre writer is the one that probably bothers me the most in the sense that to me, emigre status implies a self-conscious aloofness, a staying aloof from the uh, place of re uh, adopted residence. And that preserving most strongly the original culture becomes the prime uh, obsession. There are wonderful examples of this, you know, good examples of this through Skrbreski uh, and uh, I.B. Singer and what language you choose to defines your audience and so on. And of course, someone like Singer is writing about his American experience, so I'm not using him as an emigre quite. The expatriate um, has the greatest degree of choice among the writers who have refused to become uh, immigrant. Um, he's sort of in between, or she is in between worlds. And the exile, it seems to me quite often, um, is placed by his, her original country in the position of being silenced so that the exile writer can be grateful without um, being able to make commitments to the new country. The one that interests me mostly is the immigrant writer, the Dorfmans and the Puiges or Roberto uh, Manguel uh, writing in English in Canada. And I think that a lot of magazines, uh, uh, mainstream magazines, establishment magazines uh, here are not interested in the low-grade Ashcan realism, you know, of uh, immigrant writers. That they petrify the writer, uh, foreign-born writer, into uh, a kind of nostalgia category. I find nostalgia debilitating and that the immigrant writer, in giving up some roots and acquiring new roots, new country, new culture, uh, has a release of energy that is very special and uh, that's what I would like to see more of. Eva, how about you? We haven't heard from you, so you take it on next. Uh, well, indeed, I mean, I mostly agree that, you know, that, that one of the differences between the immigrant and all the other categories is that the immigrant's primary relationship is to the adopted culture, um, the exile, uh, the exile, the emigre, um, the exile in particular, um, has his, her burning issues um, in, in the old, culture, so that, I mean, I think of, you know, Czeslav Milos, for example, uh, writing The Captive Mind as his first book, uh, a book about the situation of Polish intellectuals, um, about the situation which he left. Um, um, the immigrant, you know, with a greater or lesser degree of choice, because I don't think it is, it is always uh, a complete choice needs to engage uh, uh, with, with the adopted country. And it is that engagement, you know, that struggle, um, which, is, which is often part of immigrant writing. And I think that 
uh, you know, the struggle, which is often one of oh, conflict, infatuation, seduction, uh, quarrel, um, makes for writing which is probably less removed, less cool uh, than, than, uh, than the writing which comes out of, of the other cultural situations. And it is probably, you know, writing which is most genuinely bicultural, um, uh, which comes from the double perspective of uh, being within the new culture and being genuinely within it, not looking at it from some, you know, uh, uh, removed uh, vantage point which one already has formed. Um, uh, so one has, you know, the, 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 the vantage point of the new culture and always, I think, the residual perspective of the old. Um, if you don't want to add to that, I'll go on to the next of you. Uh, let me just say that briefly, uh, I was trying to place myself uh, into this uh, category, in these, into these categories. Uh, it, seemed, it, it seems to me that I don't fit in there because my, uh, my, I did my first writing when I was 10 years old because I had come to uh, Liverpool. I was living with a uh, very kind Jewish family who it seemed to me did not know. Obviously, they must have known what was going on, otherwise they wouldn't have put themselves in the way of having me. But it seemed to me that they really did not understand what the world was that I was coming from, and I was not interested in it culturally or politically, but, but experientially. They didn't know what was happening over there, and my parents were over there. And I bought a, 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 what, what do you call it, an exercise book. It had a purple cover and had a white, white label with a red line around it. And I filled it from, in German from side to side. And it doesn't see, it seems to me what I was doing then is still very much what I'm doing now when I'm writing uh, on whatever subject. You know, it's, it's, please, please let me explain to you my writing saying what this is like. Whatever mm -hmm. it is that, 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 that the likeness I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I, I, I think, I think it, uh, that, that's my refugee writing. Mm -hmm. Listen, listen, let me tell you what it felt like. Well, the please, this other, please, this the other, passion, this other world. This other the world. please, please, and the passion of yeah. that part of what defines an immigrant writer as distinct I from think, other I think that's what I'm saying, but I'm not sure where, where, where in fits. that category it fits. And it seems to me it fits all of us, is what mm -hmm. I'm trying to say. Yeah, it probably does. And I mm -hmm. do think it's one yeah. of the great impulses, one of the, you know, the great impetus of immigrant writing is, in fact, to explain the situation which is anomalous still. But I want to... Um, separate the citizenship or, you know, uh, documentary evidential kind of category from the emotional commitment that one can have citizenship and still remain resident alien psychologically. Yes, indeed. That's what I was trying to steal from your book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next question, which uh, really goes to Eva first because her book is in large part about this in certain sections anyway is the following. What are the advantages and disadvantages of writing in an adopted language? In the case of immigrant writers, does the use of an adopted language help to create a particular immigrant vantage point? And how does one cope with the insecurity of not writing in one's native language? 
Did all of you hear that, despite the... Okay. Well, Laurie has been very eloquent on the subject already. Um, but I'm struck a little bit by the specificity of, of, of different, of individual experiences in this respect. Um, I would say, you know, that, that uh, acquiring a language unconsciously is a sort of luxury. I mean, I don't know, you know, that the conscious acquisition of a language is something to miss um, or to regret. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is interesting. Um, I'm struck by the specificity of these situations uh, because I came from Poland to Vancouver when I was 13. Uh, Vancouver, as opposed to New York, perhaps, uh, had very few associations for me. I mean, it was really a sort of blank on my, in my imagination. Uh, you know, the word Canada made me think of the word Sahara. Uh, I mean, I really had no, <laughs> no sort of lively associations yeah. at all. And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave Poland. I was an unwilling immigrant. Um, it was my, very much my parents' decision to go. And moreover, we came at a sort of strange period between emigration so that um, there was really no sort of cohort group, no community of emigrants. So all of this made for a rather radical, a rather extreme severance, um, a rather um, uh, you know, extreme leap from one place to another. And I think I was you know, particularly conscious of that severance. Polish uh, had no application all of a sudden. There were, I, there were certainly no peers of mine who spoke Polish. Uh, there was no Polish, there were some Polish people that, that we knew, but really no Polish community. Um, it, it, it simply lost its life, it, it lost its relevance. Uh, and so I think, you know, that for a while I had the experience of sort of being without language. Um, uh, and the experience is, I think, uh, rather terrifying. And I think that the first, the, the first stage of a sort of hyper-consciousness of a new language um, is certainly interesting, but but um, uh, also uh, not a comfortable one. Um, I learned the language. Um, of, I learned to manipulate the language. I learned to speak. I learned to understand uh, rather quickly. I was young enough for that, uh, but I was very conscious uh, that. I did not understand the connotations, the emotional context, uh, uh, sort of the inner life of the language. So that, you know, when a friend would tell me that she was envious or happy or thrilled or cheerful, I certainly understood the words, but I couldn't quite make the translation, you know, from the word to the reality of this emotion because I did not understand the emotional life you within know, the language was embedded. If I yes. put something in there, will I stop you? Can you no, get back to it? No, go ahead. Because I think I, th I have a, 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 a funny little quirk about two languagedness, which I think fits in here. When I first came to New York and had my first men friends, they were quite dazzled by the four-letter words that I was willing to use as young ladies in the 50s didn't, did usually did not do so. What they didn't know is that the, the, a dirty word in, in German would never have 
come into my mouth. Mm -hmm. But in the translation, it has no taboo. Absolutely. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the, yes, yes, yes. I mean, the connotations of, of, of the words are really very lost. I, for myself, developed sort of the strangest linguistic allergies, so that, for example, a phrase like, you are welcome, bothered me terribly, mm. wouldn't <laughs> cross my lips, because, because in Polish, to, to imply that there is something to be thanked for is impolite, and it just seemed impolite to me. Um, so anyway, so, you know, so for a long time, I think you know, that there is a, a, a sort of an awareness of, of the artifice of language. But I think that eventually, of course, that awareness, that awareness of language as language, um, can become useful for a writer. I mean, I think of Beckett, who is sort of a, an extreme case of somebody who chooses to write in a second language. Uh, um, very extreme, it seems to me. Uh, but of course, he chose that because he was interested in language itself, in not, in not taking for granted all of the conventions of thought, all of the conventional ideas that come with a given with a given language. Um, and I you know and I do think that after a while that that slight distance gives you uh, a kind of perspective from which uh, you know from which you can see what is conventional, you can see what is cliched, you can see perhaps with some clarity what uh, what what a person embedded within a language uh, takes very much for granted. Um, I also think, incidentally, I mean, you know, that, that, that for me, the whole struggle has been to make the language as natural, <laughs> um, uh, as comfortable as the first language would be, would have been, uh, and that, that takes a long time. Um. That's part of the insecurity, surely. I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, all of us here must have felt some degree of the unnaturalness of being put in a environment where everybody else had an absolute mm -hmm. sure sense of what they were saying mm -hmm. yes. in their communication. No, I no. never felt that. You didn't feel that. I felt that, I guess partly because I, it was my native language. I mean, mm -hmm. it was almost heightened by the fact that it was my native language and I wasn't a native. Mm -hmm. um, I always felt that uh, language was the weapon with which to conquer the world, the only mm -hmm. weapon that I had. And I think uh, I'm different from uh, Laurie and Ava in that I was forced into English, and not just the language, but street names in England, and we had inspectors, language inspectors, coming to check our accent in Calcutta, really? right? <laughs> when I arrived in Iowa, I spoke so British, it was ghastly. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so that it was very much a stepmother tongue. You know, mm -hmm. the confidence was in knowing the language and using it, if necessary, better. And instead of it being a prison, for me it was liberating that it was not my natural or native mm -hmm. language so that um, the cliches were not cliches to mm -hmm. me. There were possibilities in uh, the words that a native speaker would simply be uh, blind to. It's mm -hmm. like Nabokov says in Speak Memory that uh, words had colors for him. It's that same kind of sensitivity that is unnative, non-native. But as a writer now, I face certain kinds of difficulties with language. How do I get the sense of uh, people speaking in a foreign um, language, however, in Queens or in um, uh, Brooklyn? 
how do I uh, get at the very different kinds of mindsets, motivations that some of my uh, American characters go through. But you really choose to write exactly about that, don't you? <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, really what uh, you For me, mean. all yeah, my writing exactly. is really about language, yes. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, writers like Melamed have been very useful to me in discovering uh, how to solve the yeah. ghetto problems. Mm -hmm. But um, you were saying about the insecurity mm -hmm. of language. I think that perhaps Ngugi is an interesting example of someone who, after writing in English, is going back to Swahili. Or mm -hmm. I just heard the other day talking to a uh, Bengali writer called Amitav Ghosh, Circle of Reason that he is thinking of uh, writing in Bengali uh, at some future date, so that I think that that's very much present mm -hmm. with some people. I think I'm in a different situation again, I think just because of the age at which I learned it, I am not insecure in English. It's German I'm insecure with. <laughs> I don't speak it easily. I, I think there must probably be more than, more than just, in, uh, you know, I think there's a certain uh, dislike, hostility. Uh, but certainly, German is not a language uh, I can use easily. I don't speak it easily. But here, here's something else uh, uh, that seems to me interesting. I translate out of it. And there's something that, uh, something very curious. I can translate, read German. I really have not been reading German for the last uh, 40 years. Uh, and yet I can understand the meaning and the sub-meaning and the multiple meaning of a German word which I last used when I was 10 in a way I could not possibly have made any use of. There's a sophistication, apparently, in what you know about a language at 10 that has no relation at all with the use you're making out of it at 10. Yes, I share this situation yeah. very much. I mean, that I have lost my fluency in Polish, you know, and Polish is not my adult language, and I learned, you know, so much of sort of adult experience, and certainly I learned writing, and I learned literary language, you know, in English. And yet, you know, there are, it's, 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 it's a slight variation of, on what you're saying, but yet, you know, occasionally I find that Polish sort of rises up. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it rises up in sort of association with rather primary emotions, with emotions which come from <laughs> from childhood. And, you know, it, it continues to have this sort of aura, you know, and a richness of associations. Um, um, in that simply has not been lived through before mm -hmm. or certainly written about before. And what he does in Midnight's Children with vocabulary or the satanic verses or what I'm trying to do in my new novel is to Websterize Hindi <laughs> and Bengali, that we are, instead of italicizing and making words seem foreign, we're saying we are now part of America and this is coming into American English, these words that are commonly used, let us say, in Queens. No, I think you really have, you know, discovered a new kind of America or a language for a new kind of America, and it's, you know, it seems to me that in your writing, having a point of departure in one language is almost irrelevant. 
certainly the opposite that, that of insecurity. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Total yeah, security and inventiveness and <laughs> courage. That is a multicultural literature. I, I wonder if we uh, have time to go on to this very grand third question I have here. I, I want to read it because it uh, seems to me so grand that uh, Laurie right away said, uh, I don't understand that question at all. I said, well, you'd be the first one to answer it then. She said, well, my answer would be no. Now, if I you can figure out how you can answer no to this question, I will read it and we'll, I think we should give it, what, maybe five minutes and then three okay. Yeah. Okay, because I wanted to allow the audience to have a chance to ask questions too. What are the problems and the pleasures that the immigrant writer discovers in dealing with his special subject matter? For example, does the writer's nostalgia for a lost homeland, especially that of one's childhood, create as much fear as it does energy? In particular, the fear no. of... No. <laughs> <laughs> you. In which? Which, wait, wait. Oh, no. In particular, the fear of running out of an appropriate subject matter once nostalgia has been exhausted. No. Can you get rid of nostalgia? No. And here's the answer. Uh, does the discovery of a second homeland provide sufficient new material? Well, it certainly has for, I think, every uh, writer at this table. This wonderful mm -hmm. question right. presupposes yeah. so many things. Right. It's like, it presupposes it knows where a subject comes from and so on. You know, I'm going to take the writer's privilege and just ask, say what I want to say, never mind sure. about what the question uh, is, because <laughs> I have something left over. Uh, I think there's something for, for the bilingual uh, writer, and surely it, this, to some degree, to a great degree, applies to anybody who learns another language. Just the fact, and I guess we know it more in our bones and earlier, that there isn't a word that means that object. You have a choice. It, there are, there apparently is, I mean, the, the word doesn't come with its, the, the object doesn't come with its words. You have all these possibilities. I mean, that, that's, that's uh, as a translator, of course, that's. Uh, you learn that too. Uh, I think it's, what I'm trying to say is it's one's a relation not to English or the second language, but to language as language. Mm -hmm. Language as this thing that you can, you can toss around and, uh, and mess with and make up and. Uh, use for, for to, to, to explain or to shout or to do all these things with. Yes, I mean, I don't think you know that, that any writer writing in a second language is ever going to be lazy about language or to take it for granted. And probably, you know, there is a, a great sense of playfulness that comes out of it as well. I really don't have, I know, I, I, I've read Davis' book with enormous, enormous affection and interest, but I, this, this question of nostalgia, I have no nostalgia for my Austrian childhood. Mm. Partly, mm -hmm. in fact, because of, uh, of what happened there, and partly because of my, my uh, of the age. I had a notion, Ava, when I was reading your book, that maybe, maybe the language that, that is one's primary language is the one one first falls in love in. Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> well, grows into into becomes thirteen in. Well, I think that's quite possible. I mean, he falls in love in with, with in many and things, then with. but I mean, with many things. Of course, like the a, that's like sort of being born again into that language. Yes, yes, the landscape and 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 you know, I mean, and and the, I mean, not only a person, but but the world yes. itself. Do you want to comment on that, Barty, at all? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Okay. Why not? Uh, Reveal everything. Uh, you can say no. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I think through the seven books, I've worked from nostalgia 
to a kind of uh, passionate embrace of something else, you know, discarding mm -hmm. of nostalgia. The very first book, uh, a novel, uh, The Tiger's Daughter, that I did, I felt perfectly at home in both worlds. I didn't know America well enough, and I was just enough removed from India to feel I could see it whole. But since then, nostalgia has been less and less. And it was while writing a nonfiction book, which turned out to be an accidental autobiography, called Days and Nights in Calcutta, that I realized that I was, it was a traumatic book to write because I was having to work through the, I'm not an expatriate, I'm an immigrant kind of uh, uh, commitments. But what, nostalgia is a scary thing to me, and I find it, um, debilitating, and that uh, the writers who, foreign-born writers who allow themselves to be trapped into writing nostalgic material um, have suffered. Are, yeah, have suffered, yes, yeah. and that there's defective memory and mm -hmm. there's fraudulent sort of sociology. Mm -hmm. uh, if you feel that your readers want to read little glimpses of your native world, then you're writing to formula. Plus, it seems to me that uh, there's always the danger of foreign-born writers being dismissed as s only of sociological value, not on a par with regular mm -hmm. writers for their sentences mm -hmm. or structure, but only what they can relieve about history and custom and local color. That's a strong um, point. That's where the courage, again, shows to uh, confront American native-speaking, native, native non-immigrant writers in their own territory. And I, I honor all of you for doing that. Yes. I would just like to add one thing. I mean, I, I think that nostalgia perhaps has a one-time use. I mean, I think of Speak Memory, you know, which Nabokov probably wouldn't have written if he had stayed in, in Russia. And, and of course, childhood is, you know, one of the great subjects of literature altogether, and, and it is you know, a nostalgic subject. I, I do think that there is a danger of going back, particularly for a writer who changes culture and who 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 isn't who, who doesn't um um have the continuity of, of, of contact with with the childhood world so that the childhood world does become frozen um you know frozen and and, and removed. I do wonder for myself and, and, and you you two are much further along on this, but but I actually uh, do wonder, you know, what happens after one, if one exhausts the subject of dislocation, immigration, assimilation itself. Um, I recently spoke to uh, a woman um, who said that she finds herself unable to write from within American characters, and she thinks about writing science fiction. <laughs> um, um, but you know, I, I, I do wonder if that isn't a difficult step. Uh, it's a but step I think that that's, the, that's the old question, what do you write when you've written your autobiography? Mm -hmm. Well, in our time, we write more autobiography. <laughs> and, 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 uh, yeah. uh, yes, I think, I think that's a problem, but it's not that, that's not only our problem. It's, I find you I- discover another country, too. Well, one could, mm -hmm. one could, and of course, you know, one discovers a very international world <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> in which having a... You just find wilder metaphors for your <laughs> <autobiography>. <laughs> I think at this point I'm going to stop since it's uh, 9 o'clock and throw 
the session open to the audience and uh, would you address your questions well I'll repeat them if I can hear them and address them to one or the other of the panelists directly yes I see the lady in the third row yes I think, Norma, that really is what I was trying to say, that it, it happens to be that experience, but that's really, but that's at the basis of writing. Is Anybody want to tackle that? Well, I mean, I just want to say that, you know, it's, it's complicated and tricky and really a matter of equilibrium, it seems to me. Uh, you know, that a certain, a certain measure of detachment, uh, I think, may be good for writing, but I think that if it is not accompanied by some sort of identification, by some sort of affection, you know, by some sort of um, um, uh, link uh, with what you write, um, then you are in danger of, of, of you know, uh, rather drying up, I think. Uh. No, my, it seems to me my experience is not of being distanced until after you've written. You come up against something very often that you say, I can't handle this, it's too hot. And then you handle it anyhow, you put your head down and you go pull your way through. When you're at the other end, you're distanced. Or oh, that's one of the things that happens. Yes. No Bengali would do just as well. <laughs> <laughs> Another language of emotion. Yes, sir. Oscar Maria Graf. Oscar Maria Graf is a German writer who 
He spoke in his typical barbarian accent. He made a living going to the German com communities in the Middle West who, who, who write his stories. And this is, he really doesn't belong to American picture, but I do want to mention that something like this exists. And I do want to ask you a question. In, in, the, in last week's New York Times, there was this article about the typewriter did it. Yes. No, it was absolutely coincidental, though quite pertinent. <laughs> he, of course, was somebody who felt determined for a long time to stay within check. I mean, the, you know, the, and 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 found that he couldn't quite carry it off. He couldn't sustain it. I mean, that American and America, <laughs> you know, just simply took over, and in a way, the typewriter and America <laughs> made him start writing in English. Let me tell you a very brief story that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> I have a friend who uh, he's in his 70s uh, who writes and writes very well, extremely complex. He writes uh, Shakespearean German uh, historical plays. And they're not funny. I mean, I mean, they're funny, but they're wonderful. He writes them in German. He has never been tempted to write in English. He has never been willing to publish in any German country. Uh, and he does it. Uh, he has been doing that for the last 40 years. And no. this, is, this is spectacular stuff. No publication? No publication. Because I was going to ask, were your friend published his story? He's not a friend of mine. All right. Yeah. <laughs> You're disowning him. The, the misused sense of that term that Americans <laughs> use all the time. I, see. I think you only made a living being in Austria, being a, a barbarian in his later host and, and <laughs> the lectures in, the, in, in Minneapolis or Minnesota or whatever it was. Any other questions? Yes, in the back there.
Thank you for that sharing of your experiences. I have another question here. I think this might be the last. Can you hear him? Stand up and for a writer. To me seems to be seems to be a mixture of conceptions. It is probably the way she puts nostalgia. I think you misunderstood what I was saying about nostalgia. I don't mean that nostalgia is psychologically debilitating. On the contrary, I feel that uh, psychologically it may be necessary as a process to do something else, but that continued nostalgia in writing is debilitating. So I'm taking you on even more militantly <laughs> than you had realized. Um, what I was talking about in nostalgia, and we'll leave Singer alone for just one moment, is the fraudulent memory in which a writer who may be uh, in self-imposed exile for, let us say, 35 years, I'm thinking of a Kamla Mark and die and so on, um, you know, a good writer who chooses to write about an India that is no longer true, and where the memory is defective is simply rehashing uh, material that wasn't valid to begin with. But uh, someone like Singer, I mean, it isn't simply that it's um, nostalgia. He also writes about immigrant groups within this country. So he's, uh, uh, it's not exclusively nostalgia. It's also immigrant experience. I think there's also a there's simply a reason for not sticking with the same subject at the point where it becomes anecdotal and facile. Uh, when you discover that you have entered that thought before at that point, and you're going to, you've trodden that path before, you're going to come out at the same place. Uh, I, I, think, I mean, uh, I, I don't see any way of continually writing about uh, the, the uh, very indigestible past. But I think you really have to watch, and you have to watch when you receive, uh, accept reviews or panels, you know, when you're on panels uh, on that same subject, that you don't, uh, that you don't fall into, into, a, into you, know, you, don't, you don't keep saying the same thing, which is all too easy. Particularly panels on translation, we decided. <laughs> Not panels like this, which is, uh, I, as far as I know, the first time we've had a panel like this. Plug for pen. 
Uh, I think uh, unless there is a compelling question, there's a compelling question. <laughs> I've been, so, I've been told that my voice comes through, but the word charming is a terrible word. I remember sitting at Redloaf once with a certain, a certain uh, re a writer was reading and uh, saying to my neighbor, my neighbor and I said to myself, it's chew charm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous uh, good. Thank you very much. You've been a good audience. We'll have an informal reception in that corner.